Welcome to the Ford Hastings podcast. If you want to be the best business, you need the best leaders, and simply, we bring you the best leaders. Ford Hastings is an executive search consultancy that helps you transform your high-growth business. If you'd like to know more about anything Ford Hastings, please get in touch with Will at whastings at fordhastings.com. I'm here with Mark Bigley, who in 2006 founded Secure Mail, a nationwide mail delivery logistics company that at its peak delivered over 500 million items per year, with a turnover of 32 million pounds and 120 staff. Very privileged to have him on the podcast. Absolutely great to be here, but unfortunately at its peak, Secure Mail was turning over 175 million pounds. Quirky. I read the wrong article. <laughs> We're not going to cut. We're going to run with that. Okay. So I read the five... times it was four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so five times what I just said, a hundred and what month? 175. 175 million pounds. And counting. And how many staff? Um, 300. 300 staff. Fantastic. Uh, Will's here with us. Hi there. Mark, we're going to jump right in as we always do and say, can you give us an overview of your career history from the womb, please? From the womb. So when I was uh, growing up, my, my parents uh, had their own company, which was a... Um, uh, a, a local building my father was a local builder and so I spent my <coughs> excuse me I spent my summer holidays on a building site working in various different roles from making the tea to mixing some sand and cement um, and, and that you know, gave me a good grounding in uh, you know what, what it meant to to have to get up out of bed when you didn't necessarily want to and, and, and have to go to work um, I was you know, made to pay keep, you know, so anything I earned, I had to give a third back to and the house. How did that feel as a young person um, growing up? Well, you know, when you've, when you've worked hard, you know, through the summer holidays and each week you get some money and then you have to give a, a third back, you sort of understood why. It hurts, hurts a little bit, but I suppose <laughs> it taught you a bit of a life lesson. Um, and then I went to college and I started my education in business and marketing and accounting and so on and so forth. And there was always a sense of, well, you know, do you want to go into the family business or do you want to go and do something else? And I always had, a, I suppose, an ambition to go and do something else and not necessarily be tied to what they were, they were doing, no, no disrespect to them. Um, I was the first, first one in our family to go to university. Where was so, that? Um, I was in um, Lancashire and I did a spell in uh, Vlissingen in Holland um, for six months as part of the uh, Erasmus programme where I was studying business over there with a load of uh, Spanish, Dutch and French, um, which, was, uh, which was good fun. <laughs> and I, I, did my, I did my year out, I suppose, I did my year out in Southport and uh, the story behind that is uh, I was actually going to work for Dunlop in my year out, and uh, Dunlop made the marketing department redundant just at the time when I was about to do my year out. So I had a couple of weeks to try and find a, a work placement, which is a year out of university wow. when you go and work. So I, I sort of went to the local chamber of commerce and said, you know, what have you got? Um, and they said, well, you know, we could do we, you could do this, but we don't have the money to pay you, so you've got to go and raise the money. So I went off and raised the money through the local business community and friends and the family, who then gave 
you know, the money to support me on my year out while I worked for the local chamber of commerce. And that taught me a bit of a lesson, which is, you know, you've got to be resourceful. Mm. So, uh, you know, nobody's going to hand anything to you on a plate. But, you know, when people say no or can't, you have to find a way around and you've got to try and find a way of making something work. Talk about trial by fire, though. Your introduction to, to yeah. work is, OK, yeah. you need to go and fund this. Yeah. Um, and that was that's good. And then when I um, graduated, which uh, at the time was, uh, I'm thinking back now, it would have been 1993. I think it was. It was at the time when everybody had slashed their graduate recruitment programs. I went for a job with uh, Kimberly Clark. Remember this well. There was about a thousand applicants and one job. Got down to the last ten. Had a two two uh, two nights away at Kimberly Clark's offices, you know, doing team building and everything else to try and get this job, and didn't get it. And was absolutely gutted. And, and thought, you know, that's the last time I ever buy a Kimberly Clark right. product. Yeah. But uh, you know, taking nothing against it. So then I came home. Uh, yeah, as you do, you, you go home, you've got nothing else. And um, I always remember going to the local um, job centre and saying to them, right, okay, I've got to sign on. But actually, you know, what, what I want to be able to do is um, I want to go back to the Chamber of Commerce and I want to work. But I have to be, they can't pay me. So, but if I work there for free, I would get contacts mm. and I'll get a job. Mm. But you have to allow me to do it. And the rules are apparently if you're signing on, you have to be available for work. And, uh, and therefore, they couldn't get in their head that I will still be available for work, but I'm just going to work here for free, for free to, to get a job. Mm. And I had to go, I spent all day going from one department around the corner to the other department who kept sending me backwards and forwards because nobody would actually make a decision on whether on whether I could sign, sign on <laughs> and go and work for free to go and get a job. But in the end, somebody just said, well, okay, just do it. Right. Um, that was I, 1994? I think it was 1993, My was. guess is in 24 years, that same process would probably still occur in a chamber of commerce. Probably, probably. <laughs> the, cha- the chamber of commerce was great. They, they were saying, look, come, come work. Yeah. It was the it was the local employment office. Right. The, you know, the um, the employment centre. They were basically, they were struggling to get their head around it. And um, what they wanted me to do was to, uh, they, they have workshops and everything else, you know, give you access to a printer, give you access to, you know, filling out job descriptions and everything else, uh, application forms. Uh, yeah, come come to our offices and do that. And I'm thinking, well, no, I'll go over to the Chamber of Commerce and and, and get ingrained in as much opportunity as I can, mm. and, and I'll get a job that way. In two weeks, I have a job. And, okay. Um, so I don't know whether I actually signed on or not. In the end. I probably signed on, and they probably never paid me. But I ended up, you know, I got a job through that. And um, so, so effectively, through building contacts within those two weeks and demonstrating value, you then yeah. Got a job. Absolutely. And uh, nobody had to pay me, but what they did was they got, I suppose, try before you buy. You know, yeah. they, they had this sense of, um, okay, we can see what you're about. We, and, I, and I've lived my life in, in that way, which is the paycheck always comes second. You know, people get to um, uh, you know, meet me, see me, see what I'm capable of. And if they like, then, you know, we work, we work together. And, and if, if we don't get on, then we don't. But was that an attitude you you already had, or was it by necessity a function of there's no work here? I need to 
Yeah, I think um, probably a bit of both. Um, it, it, it probably wasn't as, um, as at the forefront of my mind at that time. Uh, it was a means to an end, mm. but it served me pretty well. And, as, and that attitude has served me pretty well ever since. And um, it, because people are always nervous uh, and um, suspicious of somebody that just wants a paycheck. Mm. Uh, actually, they want to know what the value is for this money that I'm going to give you. And it seems to me that in any other walk of life, you want to test drive a car, you want to look around a house, you want to you know, see what it is before I'm going to make a purchase. Employment's no different, really. Yeah, you forget that you're the product, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, you know, people need to, need to get a sense of what that's all about. And are you going to get that in an interview? I'm not so sure. So no. I, I, I like it. I, I like the attitude. And you know, where people have sat opposite the table from, from me in, in, in a reverse situation, where I've had some great people and I've had people that are prepared to take risk. And I think, well, do you know what? If you're prepared to take the risk, I'm prepared to meet you halfway. And those people have turned out to be the best employees ever because they absolutely know... It, it, yeah, it's it's risk. They they know what will happen if it doesn't work, and therefore it, it can't it can't fail. It has, I guess, it has to work. I guess by by, by the virtue they have sort of skin in the game, undertaking that sort of yeah, absolutely uh, uh, mentality. Yeah, no no di- no dissimilar to I suppose you know inve- investing in companies to a certain extent or, or, or getting some equity, um, but it's slightly different. In you know, if you're if you're a single parent and you're going to switch careers because you're going to leave a company that you've been in for twelve years and you're going to come and work over on, on in, in something else, that takes a huge risk and commitment. Mm. And um, you know, when when we've done that in the past, it's absolutely worked brilliantly because you just you know those people are the most resourceful people mm. that I've ever met, mm-hmm. and um, we'll, we'll just do what needs to be done to make it work. And the results, you know, have been absolutely fantastic. As you say, if you are if you have a small family or young family to look after, then it's, it's almost a hidden risk to the company mm. because people probably downplay how much how much impact a negative outcome will have on mm. them. Oh, absolutely. Um, huge. So therefore the commitment they've given is actually... Mm. And, and you know, from, from my side... You know, is um, every time I got up in the morning, I was responsible for three hundred mortgages. You know, that's you know that that that's you know it's not something you forget in a hurry. You know that you are the custodian. And I think this is slight difference. You're the custodian of the company. My uncle was in business, and I always remember him saying to me, "You know, the the business entity is the most important thing. It's not you. It's not them. It's the entity. And it's what you mean by entity." It's, it's everything. Mm. It is the people. It is the culture. It is the product. But it's the entity. And if the if you if you invest in the entity, you protect the entity. You know, it will deliver what you need it to deliver. And and that's stood with me. Which is, you know, it's not about me. It's about that and putting the effort into that. So when I used to wake up in the morning and know that now I'm the custodian of this entity until it passes to the to the next owners or the next generation. But, you know, those people who work in it, you are absolutely responsible for them, their livelihoods, their, their families' livelihoods, 
And uh, yeah, it, it's it's important to know that, and and you you have to embrace it. Yeah, it, it, and if you don't, I think you know some people do, some people some people don't. Um, but but for me, it's just the way I work, and it's served me served me very well. Mm. And I think you know that breeds a certain degree of, of, of loyalty and support. That you know when you're all in the trenches together, you know that's when you learn whether whether you are in the trenches together mm. or people are running for the hills. Right, I think. Of all of the guests we've had so far, you're the first person that's used the term custodian uh, to describe how they view the business. Um, so I want to touch on that later in yeah, the podcast sure. for sure, especially when we talk about some leadership-oriented questions. Very interesting perspective. Um, take me back to yep, so, uh, the career. Um, so I, uh, when I got my job, I became uh, what was termed at the time a town centre manager. And what a town centre manager was all about was um, trying to revitalise um, uh, and regenerate the, the local urban areas of town. So I was Southport's town centre manager. And it was the only private sector-led town centre management initiative in the UK because it was funded by the private sector. The council put no money in. Every other scheme in the country, the council put cash in. This was funded by the likes of Marks & Spencer, Boots, um, local SMEs, Chamber of Commerce, yeah, our family put some cash in. Yeah, but it, it was, um, but it was great. And and, and in Southport, it was quite, um, it was a, it was a modest enterprise. But what it was a, about was was getting the resources of the local authority to be directed in the areas that the retail community needed them to be directed in. And what you mean by that? In its simplest form, is making sure that the bins in the local town are emptied at the right time so that, and the streets are clean. And you might find in a local authority that the person who cleans the gardens can't actually pick litter up off the pavement because one's leisure services right. and the other one's technical services that deal with roads as opposed to gardens. And, you know, my job was to sort of tread through all of that and say, yeah. you know, this is ridiculous, yeah. to actually get... The local authority to behave differently. Actually, if there's some litter there, pick it up. It up. Um, you know, reintroduce entertainment, reintroduce marketing, reintroduce different things within the town centre. Because what you had at that time, which is what we're finding now, you had lots of businesses going bust. Mm. You had lots of vacancies in town centres. You, you you had a really dire shopping experience, and you had. The, uh, the introduction of uh, Meadow Hall in Sheffield and Trafford Centre was on the horizon outside of Manchester. And that was going to suck so much uh, consumer retail expenditure in, into those environments and it was going to come straight off the high street. And, and what the, the likes of Boots and M&S that had a huge estate in, the, uh, in, in towns and cities was how can we protect that? You know, we've got huge amounts of, of store space, shelf space in those in those environments. How do we protect it for the longer term? Okay. So the, the the key thing was you know making sure that the the money that the council was spending was spent in the right areas. But but for me personally, what it meant is that at a very young age, I was dealing with you know, store managers and mm. local stores and local business owners and hotel managers and hotel owners, and I was also dealing with chief executives and senior council officials um, uh, within a within a boardroom environment. Um, and, and I was, 
you know, 24 years old. And what that, you know, that, that gave me a great grounding because it was uh, dealing with some, you know, some pretty experienced individuals for me being at such a, at such a young age. Mm. And I, I did that for a couple of years and I saw that there was a, a job in Wigan for a town centre manager and I thought, well, okay, well, I'll go for that. And it was a fantastic salary. And I thought, crikey, this is amazing. And, uh, and I got the job. Fantastic. I, um, I, I was, you know, uh, challenged with a you know, small point, but Wigan, which is a, a great town, um, you know, had, because of cuts to local expenditure, hadn't had Christmas lights for about five years. You know, they just hadn't been put up because the council didn't have the money to do it. So... I, I set a mission to say, right, okay, well, you know, I, I will go and get the funding to, to do that. So I I went to uh, Telewest at the time that was um, was was laying cable, if you remember Telewest. I do remember Telewest. I remember my father being on the holiday section yeah. as, as a young child. Not Teletext. Oh, Teletext. Telewest. Now, Telewest is the uh, before Virgin. Right. So what they were doing is they were laying fibre optic cable all over the country at the time, probably before it was required, but they were just digging up roads and laying this stuff, and they had a huge budget to do it. And I think I think it ended up, after about three acquisitions, it's ended up as part of Virgin Media. But Telewest at the time was, uh, head office was in Wigan, and I sort of went to them and said, look, you know, can you, you know, give us 20 grand and get the local authority to match it, and, um, and, and let's get some, some Christmas lights in, in Wigan. And they did. Uh, so I went to the local authority, and uh, they matched it, fair play to them. And for the first time in however many years, Wigan got lit up at Christmas, and everybody was absolutely delighted. Um, and, and, and the council was really proactive. You know, for, it, was a, it, was, it was a really exciting uh, interesting place. I was working with a company called Wigan Borough Partnership, which mm. was a a, a, a quasi economic regeneration agency, which was um, public and private sector. It was part of a chamber of commerce, a training and enterprise council, a business link, the local authority. You know, all mashed into one organisation. The career service were in there, and it was absolutely at the forefront of economic regeneration agencies locally. Um, uh, City Challenge, which was a regeneration agency, pump primed from uh, out of uh, Michael Hesseltine years ago, um, where, where they pump prime um, money into a local area for it to be generated, had been the catalyst for the creation of that. And it was just really exciting. And I, and I thought, right, so I, I sort of grew that um, role from being a town centre manager at Wigan to actually um, having a, a number of people working with me, for me, uh, and, and actually man managing 10 town centres within the local um, authority boundary, uh, to then growing to be responsibility for uh, inward investment and foreign direct investment into Wigan, um, as well as um, local business parks, so the same principles mm. of the town centre should be the same principles within local business parks where you can, um, you, you can have joint procurement strategies for utilities, you can look at uh, security. You can look at all of these different facets of what's important if you're um, if you're a business on an industrial estate, as if you are a business in the town centre. You know there, there are similarities, and mm. um, that 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 was a fantastic journey, mm. and um, I, I learned a, a huge amount working with some great people. Mm. In 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 uh, it was a young 
um, vibrant environment. I think, you know, if you were 40 years old, you were old. You know, everybody worked hard. We worked incredibly long hours. Um, but, you know, there were some there were some really good people. And, um, you know, we, we had a good good party and, and it was a good time. But I met my wife working. Oh, working there. fantastic. Yeah. So, um, and from there, I then, um, it, it was time to leave. There'd been a change in government, a change in government policy, um, uh, which meant ultimately that the, uh, the, the Urban Regeneration Agency that we spent however many years generating, cultivating and, and, and delivering was, was going to change. Yeah. So um, I took the, the opportunity to, to leave. So how many years uh, in town? I was, I, I was four years in Wigan. And, and during that time, you're saying effectively you had a really broad-based business education. Yeah, I think so. Because it was always dealing with the private sector, the public sector, looking at the challenges and concerns on both sides. Um, it, it's it's always it's always been saying the private sector doesn't understand the challenges in the public sector and vice versa mm. um, because those challenges are very different mm. and the constraints um, are very different mm. and therefore the, the mindset decision making process they're different. Um, that's not to say that that one's necessarily more dynamic than the other. It's just to say they have different perspectives and different challenges. You know, if you're in the private sector. You're, you're absolutely uh, focused on uh, customer quality, deliverability of services and profitability. If you're in a local authority, you're, you know, you're dealing in public expenditure. Therefore, you've got to make sure that everything is auditable, um, properly accounted for. Therefore, decision-making processes tend to be longer. Yeah. There's far more red tape, uh, far more bureaucracy. Um, but that's just the way life is. And one doesn't necessarily understand the pace of the other. And bringing that education across both sides and being a catalyst in the middle was actually a pretty good experience. Absolutely. So, yeah, that was interesting for me. Uh, I then went on to um, uh, working with my uh, brother in law um, and looking at the development of intellectual property, patents, uh, trademarks. It's work. quite a segue, isn't it? Uh, big time. But, uh, you know, it was looking at uh, different. Um, innovations, inventions, seeing whether the intellectual property um, and, the, and the claims uh, could be registered and patented and, and, and get ownership o over, uh, looking at licensing deals, looking at prototyping, working with some universities wow. in the way that uh, through the um, DTI Smart Scheme, mm. uh, looking at you know, getting some additional funding for that and, and, and seeing whether there, there's some products that actually could, could be brought to market. I did that for um, six years, and, and that was that was really interesting. Uh, and during that time, I, I also had a, a small dabble in politics. Okay. When I I stood as the uh, prospective parliamentary candidate in, in Southport, which was a target marginal seat. Um, uh, Tory, Tory party, you, you'll ask, I'll tell. Um, <laughs> At least let me ask. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that and that was that was interesting. Yeah, you know, to, to say the least. Um, what did you learn from that? Well, in uh, uh, well, in, in my political mm. dabble, what what did I learn? I I I learned a significant amount about people, and that whatever you know, politicians think, sometimes like they may live in a in a bit of a bubble, sure, where they think everybody 
reads the news 24 hours a day, are absolutely focused and interested in what is going on in their world. But actually, people just want to get on with their own lives. Yes. And don't necessarily read a paper, listen to the news. They've got far more important things on their agenda, uh, which are meaningful to them, mm. um, important and focused on their lives. And trying to communicate with people a very broad agenda to individuals is incredibly difficult. Um, but it was it was blooming hard work, you know, and anybody who stands in a general election, it is incredibly tough. Um, you know, you fund it yourself and you know for You've had a lot of experience for, of that by this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, 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 for four for four years I I um, I spent doing that and you you know you learn a lot about different policies and different thoughts and, and you know people say well why did you want to get involved in politics and, and, and for me it was um, it, it, it was a burning ambition to eradicate poverty and, and is that from any no I think it was it, it's a say it's just an injustice really but the one thing I would always say about politicians is that the end game is always going to be the same we all want the same things we, you know, nobody wants a poor education system. Nobody wants a poor health service. Nobody wants a, a, a bad road infrastructure. You know, we all want good education for our children. We all want a good health care because at the end of the day, if you have a heart attack on the street, it's the NHS that take it. You mm. know, they, they are the ones that are going to be there for you. you know, so we all want these good things. It's just the way we believe we should get there yeah. is very different. And, and my approach has always been that the state should be a provider and, and provide a safety net for people. You know, if, if you fall on hard times and you find yourself in, a, in an incredibly difficult position, then the state is there to help and support. Um, but this, people should not end up being dependent on the state. Mm. And, I, and, and that was a different view. You know, that was my view. That, you know, if um, if you can work, you should work um, and contribute. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, for me, if you can't necessarily get a paid job, you should still contribute. Whether you contribute voluntarily, you know, whatever you do, you should make a positive contribution to your community and to society. And 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 if you do that, then society and community will take care of you as well. And and, and but you know, for me, it was always around you know work and, and being able to earn money to you know to be able to provide a, a life for your family yes. and you know by all means pay into the system through taxation and, and other means but that was very much my my view and you know so so how does that eradicate poverty well if we equip people with the right skills and the, and the, and the, and the right opportunity then this shouldn't be a reason why people can't embrace the opportunity and actually help themselves. And for me, it's creating the environment where essentially people can can fundamentally help themselves. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I'm probably a left-leaning Tory. You know, it's, yeah. It's, um, but I think, and you know, I was coming at it. You know, in my view, I, I think that is a it's, it's, a, it's a it's a sound way of of looking at something from my particular perspective. Mm. And you know, I'm a great believer in you know good education and. Great believer in a, in a great health service, 
Um, yeah, and, and, you know, I have, I admire politicians, uh, all um, uh, political persuasions, who are prepared to stand up and be counted on, on what they believe, whether I, whether I agree with them or not. You know, I, I just can't abide, um, you know, people who might stand up and be counted. Mm. And I think, you know, if you go into politics, then you should absolutely stand, you know, conviction politician, you should stand by what you believe. Rather than, um, hell or high water. And if rather than that's great. comfortable for you, well, so be it. Absolutely. I heard quite an interesting thing, um, well, read uh, an American article the other day, and say, all this talk about left wing, right wing, so the two wings of the same bird. We're trying to go this way, and just because yeah. you're this color and this color, it, it, like you say, with nobody's saying we want a really bad NHS. It, yeah. It's but let's come together and talk yeah. through those points. So, yeah, I thought it was. But it, and, it, and it's a problem. I mean, a lot of our friends who are, who are doctors, surgeons, they, they work in the NHS, and uh, you know, they you know, tell me how it, how it is for them. But, and you know, it's tough. Mm. It is incredibly tough. And 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 the thing is with the NHS. Everybody wants it, okay? Everybody wants the NHS, okay? So is everybody prepared to pay for it? And that's where it gets a bit tricky because, you know, I'm a great believer in, in some form of hypothecated tax for that. You know, actually, you know, having, you know, having something that um, every time you buy, you know, have something on the till receipt that says, you know, this, Whatever it is, ten p, twenty p, whatever is going to right. the NHS. Just bring it forward. Bring it psychologically. The absolutely, so that everybody knows that whatever you're doing, you are contributing to this because it is the one institution that every single citizen is going to have a reliance on at some point right. in their life. That's actually a, a very good psychological idea. You know, yeah. you've, you've purchased X and there's a well, nice new sofa, and actually it's. This. And so you know, yeah, okay. If you want to go and get a sugary drink, that's fine, but you're going to pay more for it. But at least know what you're paying. Yeah. And if you're going to smoke. Guess what? You're going to pay more for that, and you're going to see what you're paying. And anything which has a direct impact on your use of the service. So, you know, if you're going to do something to your body, which ultimately means that you're going to be a bigger consumer in the NHS, then you're going to have to pay more for it. So, you're a fan of the fat tax, then, as in? Uh, yeah, agree with all of that. Right. Um, you know, because people have to change their lifestyles, and the only way that we're well, not the only way, but a yeah, a key way that makes people stand up and take notice is if it's going to hit them in their wallet. Right. I think I'm going to add to that that I think the Food Standard Agency should revise perhaps what a healthy diet actually is, but that's another conversation <laughs> with another person. Yeah, this one out, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> how did it go? That, that um, so I, um, yeah, I did win. Okay. And how did that impact you after four years of work? Um, Bear in mind you were working as well, I assume. There, there was a certain, look, I mean, in all of these things, you, you know, you, you put it, a load of time in, but ultimately you're dealing with national politics, and you know whatever is happening nationally is going to fundamentally have an impact locally. Um, so that it, it was no surprise mm. in, in that sense. Um, I was then um, pretty much immediately re-elected uh, to the position of parliamentary candidate for Southport again, uh, even before David Cameron was elected leader of the Tory party. So. Um, I, I was I was doing that, but I'd also um, started looking at the postal market. Mm. A friend of mine, sort of who who, who knew about um, the liberalisation of, of mail, he had worked in raw mail in a previous world, and he said, you know, you should you should look at this. And I said, well, uh, and I said, well, look, if I don't win, then I'll I'll take a look. 
and I didn't really phone me up and remind me. I said, you know, will you, will you take a look? And um, so I did. And, and I thought that was uh, really interesting. It was the, the start of the opening up of a, of a market which was dominated by a single monopoly provider, which was Walmart. Yeah. It was the opening up of the postal market. And when I looked into this, I had meetings with Royal Mail, I had meetings with the regulator, and I thought, well, there's something in it. So I, um, the, the guy that I was working with, um, he, was, you know, he had a small company, and, and he said, you know, I, I can't pay you, but what I can do is I can, do, theme, I, can, I can give you some shares in my company, mm. but will you work on this? Mm. So, so I did. Um, and I raised some money. I raised some money from friends and family and went to the bank, raised some money from the bank, which was part of the small firm loan guarantee scheme. Uh, so it was underpinned by the, uh, the I suppose, the, the, the government framework for mm-hmm. uh, small businesses and raised half a million quid. Fantastic. Um, and got a postal licence and got some premises, we, we couldn't find any premises, and I, I stumbled across a, an empty unit and got the landlord and said, you know, why can't we go there? And well, it's on a long lease by a company that's not occupying it. I said, well, give me the details of the company that's there. And it was a company in Ireland, so I phoned them up and said, look, you've got premises that you're not using, I need premises. Um, I can't take a long lease from you, but rent it to me, mm-hmm. and they agreed. So they said, well, it's a contribution to them, I guess. Yeah, isn't it? You know, uh, we'll do a tenancy at will, and um, you know, go in. And, uh, and we were there for four or five years. It was good for them, but you know, starting off with a with a um, with a postal license, with a, an agreement from Royal Mail for a wholesale access agreement, um, which meant that we could access the, their final mail delivery uh, network, and no clients. And Sorry, can you explain the agreement again? The access agreement. Yes, the access agreement is that you can. So, if you have a in the old days, if you had a postal license, yep. you were essentially another Royal Mail. So you could deliver mail anywhere in the UK um, for, for 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 a price. And it used to be you weren't allowed to do that. Anything that was below a pound, which was a letter, Royal Mail had the monopoly right to deliver, and and that was essentially removed. So, but Royal Mail still had. Um, postmen, postwomen going up and down the street six days a week all over the UK and is by far the most um, you know, a, a efficient way of delivering mail. So it is absolutely ridiculous for anybody else to be able to grow its business without actually being able to access that network. So mm-hmm. Royal Mail had been required as part of its regulatory obligations to open up its delivery network and they set up a wholesale network Right. which meant that you collected mail from customers, you sorted it, and then you presented it to Royal Mail across all of its, what they call, inward mail centres. And at the time, they had 71 across the country. So we would take mail from a customer, and then we would have to deliver mail to Truro, Aberdeen, Inverness, um, you know, every, every mail centre that you could think of. 
and, and then they, the, the postie, would then go and deliver the mail. So we had to have software, sortation equipment, and so on and so forth. But there was this network that you could tap into. There was a network we could tap into. Much like a phone provider can tap into one of the main... Well, the, you know, the beauty of a phone provider is it's a bit more digital right. because we need vans, yeah. vehicles to actually go along the road and, and physically deliver in. Uh, so we went on the back of a company called Lynx and we contracted with them to, um, you know, we would give them our post, they would take it into Royal Mail along with their own mail that they had. Uh, Lynx was acquired by UPS within a short period of time of us agreeing on our relationship and UPS turned around and said, well, we don't want third parties in our network and kicked us out. Sure. And um, we had a, a week to uh, find an alternative <coughs> way of working. How far into the journey was this, Mark? About um, a year. It's not we very long. We had a small number of customers. Um, in fact, we probably had about one one customer that was going to absolutely it was going to shut us down. Yeah. And um, so we thought, well, you know, we'll solve that um, for want of a better explanation. Yeah. Uh, we went and hired a load of vehicles and. We went and found a load of drivers and we just accessed Royal Mail and we set up our own logistics network in the space of seven days. Cracking. With a load of high vehicles. And um, we, we just thought, you know, if we're going to do this, we, we're going to do it. And that was a fairly risky decision there. Right? It was the only decision because we were either out of business or yeah. we had to find an alternative provider. But I was always a great believer that strategically, you live and die by your quality of service. Mm -hmm. So putting, you know, this taught me a lesson, which is putting your quality of service in the hands of somebody else. You're, you're putting the one thing that people want to buy right. in the hands of your competitors. Yeah, the end, user, the end user experience is not being controlled yeah. by you. So, you know, for me, it was a fundamental principle mm. um, and it still stands with me today to a certain extent. But, yeah, you, 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 have, you have to be in control of what you're delivering and what you're charging people. So we 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 did that. We, we grew our customer base over time, but it was a bit of a roller coaster journey. I mean, we started off from zero. I think we turned over half a million pounds in year one, turned over five million in year two, um, twelve million in year three, thirty million in year four, sixty million in year five, eighty year six, hundreds. Year seven, hundred and twenty. Year eight. Well, that, that sounds like a fantastic growth story. Yeah, but with growth comes huge pains and risks, and everybody, you know, those numbers are fantastic. But what's going on under the under right. ground? You know, that so having start, turnover is one thing, profitability is another. Absolutely, because you're having to invest significantly in infrastructure. Right, and servicing the increase. Yeah. Uh, so growth. you know, wind it back a bit. You know, in. Um, in 2008, we were massively undercapitalized. We um, we were running out of money, and we knew it. Had you taken investment at this stage? No. So we, we made the decision that we needed it, um, and we went into the we we had um, ABL mm. asset back lending, so invoice discounting. Mm. We had raised about 800 grand from that, but we, we just we were just burning through money. Um, we had uh, a whole load of challenges. So we went to private equity and we did a private equity deal with a, with a Northwest-based 
um, fund, which was funded by higher net worths, so it wasn't institutional yep. investment money. Um, and they they came in and then they they put some put some money in, gave the business a new lease of life. Uh, it was we did the deal in August two thousand eight, and if you think that all the markets crashed in September yeah. 2008. We, we, were, we did that deal within four weeks of all hell breaking loose. And if we hadn't done that deal, we'd, we'd be dead. Right. Um, if, we, if we hadn't done that deal, we'd have been dead anyway. But the point is, we'd, we'd have been absolutely, absolutely. annihilated so, because the markets, all the banks stopped lending. Everybody's attitudes changed. Um, so, you know, thank goodness that we've done it. Absolutely. How did you find um, the process of raising money for the, f- the first time yeah. outside of friends and family, um, coupled with having to actually keep the business ticking over? So, the, I mean, well, I mean, we, we had advisors. You have, you, you know, trying to raise money on your own, you, you've got to have good advice. So, mm. we, we, had good corporate finance advice. Mm. Um, this is super important for some of our listeners who haven't been through this process okay. yet. So, right. so okay, um, you have to uh, you have to have two things. One, you've got to have um, some financial support, mm. um, whether that's in sourced or outsourced. But you've got to have somebody who can pull some numbers together because you've got to have you've got to have control over your financial numbers. So, because the story you're giving has to be supported by evidence, mm. and and if you don't have that in place, you, I would think it's going to be very difficult to raise money from a private equity point of view, because they want to understand margins, they want to understand profitability, they want to understand growth, um, but they also want to understand risk, and and, and therefore, without necessarily un, un, you know, having that detail, you can't understand scenario play and understand risk. So, and they will always, you know, for them, it's all about what's the downside risk. Mm. The fact that they want to invest, they can see the upside opportunity. It's how they protect themselves from the downside risk. And, 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 and having corporate finance, you know, everybody says, you know, we could do a deal, we'll do a deal in three months, six months, right? Any deal, in my experience, yes. takes nine months. It takes three months to produce your IM. It takes three months to go and do your fundraising. And, and get heads of terms, and it takes three months to do your due diligence and your legals. Yes. Right. So anybody that says it can be cheaper, and there will always be stories of it. Uh, sorry, it can be uh, quicker. There'll always be stories of it being quicker. Sure. In my experience, budget for nine months, and actually, it may take twelve because what the private equity company will want to do is they will want to drag it out because uh, they want to see how the company trades. And the hard part there is management are so consumed by this process that um, sometimes businesses underperform during the process. Right. And in, in my in the way we did it, we, 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 um, we carved it up. We, we created a point person, which was me, um, but other people were left to get on and run the company and, and do what they needed to do. But we just had one person who was the interface yes. between advisors and others. Um, and the important thing is making sure everybody else knows what's going on and communicated with um, internally within the entity, because otherwise people get suspicious and paranoid. So you had a communication piece in place for everybody that worked. Um, yeah, it's called email. So <laughs> <laughs> let people know. Yep. Yeah, this is where we are. Yep. Share documents. Yeah. You know. uh, 
but also let them know you've got to do your day job. And you know, if you need to know, I will tell you. If you don't need to know, I won't. Um, if it's not important. If you have a question, by all means ask, and, and you'll get an answer. But don't try and do two things. Focus on running the company and allow one person to go and actually do the deal. Um, and, and that, it, it's, it's just far more streamlined. And yeah. Communication is, um, is succinct. The, you know, you, if you're asked a question, you know where to go and get it. But, but having that single bridge, yeah. essentially from the entity to the, to the advisors and, and, um, and, and investors is, is important in, in my experience. So from the start, you had a segregation of duties. Yep. You had a single person who was you who yep. interfaced with people yep. and you just communicated transparently with yep. everybody. Absolutely. And, um, and we did the deal. And they came in. Um, they had experience because they were high net worth. They'd been in business. Um, the, one of the guys who was a cornerstone investor for them you know, had sold his company for 250 million quid and was living in Monaco. I mean, it was, you know, the, the other guy had been his managing director and, and had obviously exited and they'd done fantastically well. And there were other people in that fund who had all had businesses and sold businesses. And, and you know, so going and talking to them about our company and allowing them to feel questions, the questions you were getting you know, were perhaps pretty different to what you'd get from a, a normal private equity sure it, it, but it was good because they knew the challenges and the stresses but they also understood you know some of the changes that you probably had to make that that we probably didn't understand that had to be made um, we had to introduce far more controls um, we didn't have a uh, finance director uh, so they brought in an outsourced finance provider uh, we were suspicious of that to begin with but actually embraced it, um, and, and you know that worked really well. It worked well for them because it gave them comfort and confidence on financial reporting. But it was good for us because we didn't actually have any proper financial reporting and controls. Uh, and for them to then start to introduce those was was really really important for us. Um, we we had proper board meetings. We had to produce board reports. We had proper management accounts. We were. Uh, accountable uh, to a board. What level of turnover were you at when you raised this? Uh, 30, million. 30 million. Yeah. Um, uh, but that's, you know, all, all of that is, um, it's important because actually when you're producing a board report, you then, you know, you've got to lift the veil and you've got to give it what's and all of what's good, what's bad, what the challenges are, what the numbers say, and you're reporting and those people can challenge you on that. And so you go about the game. How did you find that psychologically to begin with? Uh, someone else coming in with big sway, who is, you know, on, on behalf of the fund or whatever, challenging you who has built this thing to 30 million, um, which is already a substantial yeah, size, you yeah, know. It was. It was, um, I, yeah, it, it, it was... No, well, I was nervous. Others were, were nervous because we didn't quite know what we were going to get. Um, but actually, if you go into it with a positive mindset, it was good. It was positive because we all wanted the same thing. And, you know, you know on, on day one, private equity, it's all about, you know, in and out. You know, again, people say, yeah, well, five years, 
three. Uh, you know, and, 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 and put it this way, if they can get their money out as soon as they possibly can, they will. And, and you have to just accept you are an incubator. Mm-hmm. You, know, you are an incubator for, for uh, investment growth. You know, no more, no less. And you know, they love you and they love your business, but actually what they want to do, they, they want to love their exit. Mm. And y- you shouldn't um, mistake their enthusiasm for the company right. as anything else for an their ability to get a good return. Yeah. The incentive yeah. is on return. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, they will be your best friends until the point when your performance isn't necessarily as good as it could be or should be, uh, and then they have lots of tools in their armory. So, you know, don't go into this thinking that you're all on the same page, all buddies. You're not. You know, you all have the same aim, which is to grow the company, and they want to get out. Mm-hmm. And if you could get out at the same time, fantastic, highly unlikely, but, you know, you might get some out. But it's just making sure you have that perspective, and certainly when you're growing. You know, you're, if you have a mature business which is generating really good profits, and management team has a slightly different power game. Sure. But you know, when you're young and you're growing and you want access to capital, then you know it, it, a lot of you know private equity has a lot of cards. Yeah. And you know, it, it, you'd be wise to to understand and embrace it mm. and and, and recognise that you know we are all wanting to head in the same direction, and we're all going to try and support each other to get there, and we'll be. You know, friends along the way, but there'll also be some challenges along the way, and we won't necessarily be friends all of the time. Um, and you know, and there'll be some friction there. Is that a perspective you had at the time, or is that something you've learned in hindsight? Yeah, you learn it in hindsight, I suspect. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think in 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 the sense that private equity invest in you for a return, you should accept that. You're only going into private equity because you need the money. Right. So you're, you know, from you're not, a power you're not, perspective, you're, you're not looking for a new friend. Mm. You need the money. Mm. And if you need the money, they need a return. Mm. And you have to understand that. Otherwise, they'll ask for the money. You know, go to the bank. Because, you know, equity is the most expensive thing to give away. If you've got a good business and you can invest it in different ways, if you're giving away equity, that's the most expensive thing that, that you're going to give away. Um, and sometimes you have to. Because it's just circumstance, you know, it's it's too risky for the banks. Um, the amount of money required is too much mm. for a business to um, support and finance, and so you need access to a financial structure where you can roll up the repayments and the interest, um, and it gets paid out at some stage in the future, and you know, the business gets access to to finance to support its growth. And I think if you go into it with that mindset, fine. If you go into it with a different mindset, you might get a shock. Very good advice. Thank you very much. What happened after the, yeah, the fundraise? So they got a good, they got a good return. We, they, they were there for three years. Uh, actually, they came to us and said, you know, um, we'd like you to do an MBO and, and take us out. Right. Um, you know, they, they'd grown. They, they'd reached a, a period where they thought it was worthwhile to. Uh, so that's quite a good on. outcome, really. If you yeah. if you if you believe in the company yeah. as the management team. So we, um, we went back into the markets and we absolutely believed in the company. And so we didn't take any cash out. We, um, we rolled everything 100% back in. And we found a private equity um, fund in uh, London, 
who came up and we, we had two choices. We had, um, we had one which is more northern based and we had one which was London based. We were very capable individuals running that fund and we felt that we, we needed a mindset from a funder which was going to give us a real challenge. Um, In what regard, Mark? Um, intellectually um, and, 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 and to drive. So we, you know, I'm not saying that a uh, private equity fund doesn't provide that, but if you go for a private equity fund that has lots of funds, lots of companies, has a different mindset. Mm. Um, we went for a smaller fund where they, you know, the, the uh, private equity fund had you know, a small number of deals and every deal was important for them. Right. Um, and also the capability of the individuals, um, you would expect them to be in a larger fund and, and they weren't, you know, so they were, it was, I think they were just on the right. outset of where they were <coughs> as well. So it was, a, it was a good match. I guess the larger funds, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm talking out loud, are spreading their risk over a number of companies, yeah, the, the small funds are more volatile. I, I, I think that's that's right to a certain extent. I, I think it's just larger funds. I mean, there are different funds who, who will invest different amounts in different areas. So mm. you'll have you know, the KKRs of this world, but you know, the mega deals and CPCs. But you also have you know those in the middle that will you know, write a check for fifty million quid, and then there's a a, a larger number of funds that will write checks up to ten million. And so, if um, you know, getting the, the the right fit for you is um, is pretty important. If you've got choice, if you've only got one and you want the money, you got to take it. But you know, we, we had we had a choice of two, and, and we went for the one in London, and we got a non-exec director, who again we had um, some choices on that. And we went for the one that we felt was going to give a real um, challenge to the board, to the management team, because you know we were of the view that um, you know, bringing that experience in and bringing that challenge in would help drive us and therefore drive the growth, drive the growth in the company. What, what were your decision criteria for selecting that person? As in, you want someone challenging, but what did that actually translate to? Challenging in terms of how to operate the business, in terms of the. I, I guess um, just in uh, critical analysis and questioning, mm. um, you know, in, in, in terms of, I mean, a good chairman, you know, should straddle investor management. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and effectively, is there to articulate where the investor's coming from? And you know, if the investor is not happy about something, he probably goes to the chairman. So I'm really not happy about this. Um, for the chairman to communicate that to the management team, it doesn't necessarily go directly. So it acts as a bit of a bridge, takes some of the stink out of it. Uh, and equally, the chairman should be able to speak to management and say, you know, "What are your thoughts?" So on and so forth. And if management team have got a real problem or issue, he should be able to talk to the chairman mm. and, and seek some advice without it necessarily going straight back to the investors. They're going to find out anyway. But to have that. To have that time mm. to be able to, to talk that through. So our criteria in terms of you know what did we want? A lot, a lot of it was just sitting down and talking to people. I mean, we'd gone through Direct Bank um, to find you know people who understood uh, distribution logistics, um, not necessarily post. It was about you know, logistics, and you know somebody who was pretty well experienced. Um, <coughs> our, our chairman is uh, he was. Um, 
CEO of uh, UK Mail uh, Business Post. So he, he was in Post as well as Logistics. He'd been an IPO, uh, FTSE 250 company. So, um, yeah. A, a different type of mindset mm. and, um, and, I, and I think that that provided an interesting perspective in the boardroom and was was interesting for us and um, so we, we received our investment we um, then wanted to look at okay so how can we do we go on a buy and build journey or you know what do we do um, the idea was to go and, and make an acquisition. We'd already identified an acquisition that we wanted to make, but didn't quite come off. Which year are we? Which year are we so now? So we'll be in two thousand and eleven. And the turnover uh, will be sixty odd. Sixty odd million pounds. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and they 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 came in. We. Uh, hadn't made our acquisition that we wanted to, to make, um, but DHL, who had a postal arm to its business, wanted to exit the market, and we made the decision that we would acquire it. Um, we spoke to DHL, we did a deal, we um, took its um, infrastructure uh, for post, which is a, a quick depot, took its people. Um, obviously, we didn't. they didn't have vehicles, their vehicles were in a different part of DHL. Um, but what it did do is it, gave, it doubled our infrastructure mm. in terms of our footprint and headcount, head actually, as well. But the uh, the customers were uh, you know, few and far between. So what we had to do was we doubled our costs, but we didn't necessarily double our revenues and profits. So we were, we were essentially buying that business through our P&L, mm. our balance sheet. Mm. Um, and we understood and recognised that. But it was still painful because it just meant that we went through a period of time where we were significantly um, unprofitable because we were buying a company and, and washing all of the uh, additional costs through the PL. Yes. Which is not a comfortable place to be. Absolutely not. Um, it would have been far better to be able to have bought it through the balance sheet. But just for the for the way that the HL were essentially exiting the markets, we were we were buying uh, we were buying assets. So two questions. Um, first one what drove you as a company to go on a, or to consider a buy and build strategy or an acquisition strategy? That's question one. Yeah. And question two is, what were the um, positives and negative points regarding the company you were trying to buy yeah. relative to the acquisition you actually made as well yeah. with DHL? Okay, so the idea of, of um, going on uh, buy and build was to... Um, it was it was synergy. We were going to buy a company that was essentially a sales arm, which outsourced all of its um, delivery to a third party. Well, we have an infrastructure, so the idea was if we bought the company, we would buy its revenues. Those revenues would sit in our network. Its sales team would sell our product, and we we were effectively providing a back end infrastructure, mm. and they would provide a front end sales arm, and bringing those two together. Make perfect sense. So that's complete opposite end of the spectrum to the to the deal we did. The deal we did. The deal we did was opportunistic. Right. Yeah, it was it was there. Um, we looked at it. We thought that there were um, customers there that we wanted to get access to. There was a there was a, a 
a significant amount of assets in the company in terms of automated machinery that we wanted to be able to get to reduce our overall um, sortation costs. And um, th there was some, uh, some good knowledge and um, mm. some good skills that we wanted to get access to. But the, um, the, the, the problem we had was uh, customer flights. And customers just you know, said, well, yeah, fine, we'll go somewhere else. And we didn't really have the time. To, to spend to get under the skin of the customer base, it was a it was a hurried deal. Um, it was purely opportunistic, and the positives of that deal are that we had access to different infrastructure, and we learned about automation in the sense of how how we could automate the sortation of e-commerce quickly, do complex sortations quickly. Mm. Um, the downside was. Uh, the the inherited cost and yes. what that did to the um, to the overall company in terms of becoming going for profit to uh, loss yeah. uh, is is a challenge and is a challenging boardroom because then you've got to work out how you get back to profitability yeah. and you can cut 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 we had this conversation before you could mm. you can make the cuts but what we did strategically we sat down. We said, like, you know, we, we've got to do something different. And uh, e-commerce, I suppose, was uh, in its not in, in its infancy, but in in wholesale posts, it was in its infancy. And we made the decision. We, we went away. We we um, kicked around the, the the development of a strategy. We got some external support to support us in the strategic thinking that we had to do. Um, with various different tools and models, bringing people around the table to, to go through that process. One of the large consulting firms. No, it's a company, it's a small company called Strategic Thinking. Okay. And um, yeah, really good. Anybody that's interested, um, a chap called Jeff Keys. Okay. Is um, you know, and 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 Jeff is um, you know, he's a guy who's you know, been there in large corporates and you know for the past however many years has been doing this um, and does it very well because he understands. All angles, you know, the investor angle, the management angle, entity. Um, so we went away and we came back and we said, look, if we are serious about getting into e-commerce, we need to automate. And if we can automate, we can reduce our costs. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what we wanted to do. We set out a whole strategic mission, which required funding. And fair play to private equity. They, they followed the money and they put the money in to fund it. And they said, right, okay. So you know, they had to put another five million quid in or something to, uh, to to make it happen. And we went away and made it happen. And was that a fairly smooth process? Sorry, that, that additional five million. No. <laughs> <laughs> when you say a smooth process, in the one hand, it's very smooth. We come up with a strategic plan. They liked it. They funded it. In the other hand, the pain as a management team that you have to go through because you're asking for more money from your private equity is um, it's never great you know, so it's a painful experience um, but if you want the money you have to recognise that you know, in order to be able to grow you've got to do something and um, you know, the one thing that that taught me from, a, from an entity perspective is you have to provide the quality first. So, and what I mean by that is you can cut, right? and, and cutting costs is instant. 
I cut cost, more flows to my bottom line. So I get an instant return for the cut I make. And I'm not saying you should never cut. I'm saying you absolutely should look at how you manage your costs and cut waste all the time. But when you cut, sometimes it's quite difficult to stop. And you have to, and, and ultimately you end up cutting the very service that you're trying to provide that people want to buy. And what this demonstrated is actually, if you take a step back and you say, we're not going to cut, we're going to invest. We're actually going to invest in a, in a different way to increase our quality that will ultimately have a saving. So there'll be a payback from that in terms of you know, re reducing my costs over time. Mm. But it will also provide an enhanced proposition and an enhanced product that people want to buy where I can get a better margin. And you know, that, that has stood with me in a, in a, in a way that you have to invest in your product. You, you can't just cut your costs. If you're, if you're in a situation where you know, you've got a, you, you have a problem, then if, if you can, you would always invest. Mm. Sometimes you just can't because you can't get access to funds. You just don't have the money and you've got to cut. But if you just cut and you do not make the time and space to look at the products that you're trying to sell and, in, and improve their quality, because everybody will buy a poorly designed product for, for a particular price. But then the product will get so poor that regardless of whatever price they won't buy it. Yes. And then people will actually spend a little bit more for a far better product. That's what... That is my experience, mm. and and therefore far better to invest in providing a better product that you can get a little bit more for because it puts you in a far better place. It, it gives you a sense of, of a competitive advantage, um, gives you a different mindset as a business. Far nicer to sell a good product right. than um, you know be be known for selling a substandard one. And and basically that substandard product is only ever going to get worse because you're going to be ever forced to cut. Um, and, and then you get to the point where nobody wants to buy it mm. and then your reputation is tarnished mm. and it's very, very difficult and far more expensive mm. to come out of that. I think it was Elon Musk that said at the end of the day, he's having a debate with Warren Buffett um, way of thinking, but at the end of the day, the, it's the pace of innovation that keeps you keeps you alive over a long enough timeline. Mm. Uh, we were talking about business, business moats, etc. but he was saying if your product's crappy, then your moat will be eroded no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, there's some, you know, I suppose in the space easing, it's a very different right. you know, scale, size, intellect. You know, I mean, but but the the emphasis is true. Mm. You know, that um, you know, people will buy substandard products until a point, mm. until something which is so much better comes along, and they say, mm. "Well, forget that. I'm actually going to pay more mm. because that's a better proposition." Uh, and they could do something with it, they can add value, and if you can add value, you can generate margin and, and so on, so on and so forth. So I absolutely am a great believer in um, investing to create good products that can sell. That's not easy. Um, and, and sometimes when you, you know, again, you know, for want of a better expression, when you're in a shitstorm, you know, it, it's very difficult. 
Right. And because um, you're naturally inclined to batten down the hatches as well, you cut costs. Yeah, and it depends. It, it depends what your resources are. Mm. Uh, you know, if, if you're able to go and speak to somebody who's prepared to invest, and we had investors, they were prepared to continue their investment because they, you know, they believed in what we were seeking to do and achieve, and, and that's great because you're all on the same journey. You're all in the boat rowing in the same direction. If the boat sinks, you're all going to drown. So, you know, you've all got to muck in, knuckle down and, and crack on. If you don't have access to that investment, very difficult to invest. Depends on yourself, I guess. Um, and I think the other thing that, that I've always likened up, you know, my business to is um, uh, football. Right. I'm a Liverpool fan. Oh, dear. And, uh, yeah, everybody has a view. Um <laughs> The, uh... just want to um, add for the purposes of this podcast that on my train today sat opposite me was Jamie Carragher. Uh, okay. <laughs> if anyone that doesn't understand the reference, he was a defender for Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't incre- increase my appreciation for Liverpool, I'll add, but yeah. I did sit opposite him. Yeah, good player. Um, so the, the, the issue is, if you're in the conference league, fourth division as it was, yes. um, you can only attract a certain type of player. You're not going to get a Premier League player playing for a fourth division side. It just doesn't happen. One, because you can't afford them. Two, they don't want to play there. Um, but what you can do, you can attract the best fourth division players that you can try and get, or you can find others and make them great. Yes. But when you then get promoted... Football teams have to release certain players yes. because they're just not going to cut the grade in in the third division. So you've got to get better people, got to get better players. And you know the one thing I would say is each as you grow, sometimes there's a real temptation where you, you hang on to people because you know there is a loyalty. Mm. You know, you've been with me and therefore you will stay with me and so on and so forth. And and I think for a certain people that is absolutely right and correct but for for others you're doing a disservice to the company and you're doing a disservice to them actually because they find themselves in a situation that they don't enjoy Mm. because the business is going in a different direction with different people with different mindsets skills attitudes and and it can be quite suffocating and isolating for those individuals um but the the one thing i would always say is you know you you should you should always try and upgrade your people and uh, as you continue to grow and develop you should always seek to attract good people not easy um they've got a fit you know it's just not saying because somebody's somebody's good at what they do that they're going to fit you know different people have different personalities and egos and so on and so forth so you know, the people fit for the entity has to be right it's got to fit in with your culture but you know you should absolutely constantly focus on how we can get the right people at the right time and not be afraid to release those that really the company has outgrown. Mm. As hard as that is, Mm. I think that is a principle that if you don't do that, you will get held back because people just won't have the bandwidth or the experience or or necessarily the knowledge. No disrespect to anybody, Mm. but it's just the way it is, you know, that... As you grow, you know, you, you become a different entity. It's growing up. And um, 
if you want to go in certain directions, you need people who can help you get there. And, you know, you, attracting those people is, is hard. Mm. You know, keeping hold of the right people is hard. Um, but making sure that you can identify, and in a nice way, you know, allow people to move in a different direction and move on sure. um, is, is important. And culturally, what value set did you hire for as you grew? What was fundamentally important to you and the people that you found? Um, well, I, I was my, the criticism I always received from my chairman is that I was too collegiate. And what we mean by that is, um, you know, I, I would value views and opinions from others. Um, allow people to have the debate. If people disagreed, allow them to voice it. You know, don't get upset about it. Don't necessarily agree with them. Be prepared to make a decision at the end of it, but at least allow people to have their say. Different people had a different view, which was you should just make a decision and crack on. You know, it's too much of a luxury being um, too collegiate. Okay. Um, and maybe there's a certain degree of truth in that. But I, my mindset was always in a view which. You know, always try and recruit people who are better than you. Yes. Um, you know, I always try to make myself redundant. Yes. Um, which was, and, and encourage other people's, uh, other people to do likewise. I think somebody, I, I heard a, a good one, which was, you know, A's are point A's, B's are point C's. What it means is, if, you know, don't be afraid to point people who are as good as, if not better than you, and always strive to get people better than you. Mm. Because you'll learn from them, and and they'll help take you forward. Mm. If you're just going to appoint people who you think I'm going to appoint you because you're not going to be a threat to me, because actually I think I'm better than you are, you're not actually going to be moving forward. You're just going to be in a power struggle that's sure. going to hold you back. You're the second guest to say that. Actually, we had Jan Ward, CEO of Cora Thermon, who built a large specialized steel engineering company. Yeah. She said exactly the same thing. Yeah. You know, hire people better than you, get your Absolutely. ego out of the way. Absolutely. And and in that sense, I'd be very open about it. Um, be, I mean, our culture was very open, very transparent. If people, if 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 people had disagreement, um, rather than uh, have a conversation with somebody at the side, you know, we'll just put it on the table. You know, if you disagree with each other, put it on the table. Have the discussion, air air your views, and then understand each other's positions and move on. You know, don't. Don't hide, mm. don't let it fester. That's good relationship advice, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I should take some. Um, but yeah, you know, it was very much around uh, having that sense of transparency. <coughs> and then what we would look for in what, what going through the recruitment process was um, a, a, a great believer that an interview is a two way process. Yes. That it's not just me recruiting you it's you recruiting me and we made that very transparent at interview stage the fact that if you're sat opposite then you're clearly you have an experience and you have a capability that you know should enable you to do the role so but that needs to be tested so let's test that through you know, questioning the discussion and understanding what actually you've done not what you say you've done mm. let's understand what you actually have done um, so I think what you're saying is um, fundamentally important. It's something we see in our work uh, from, from an interview perspective, that it is a 
two-way conversation and both people are assessing each other. Yeah, so we would absolutely, um, we would want to, to have a perspective of the individual on us and, you know, we would be very open, very welcoming. Any questions that people would would, would have uh, post-interview, you know, please let us know. We, we would ask them for feedback. You know, what's your view of us? What have you heard? Um, and a lot of the time what people will hear in the marketplace is different to yes. what it's reality. And, and, and it gives you the opportunity to actually educate the applicant because the applicant might be there for a whole host of reasons. Yes. Um, not necessarily because they want the job. Might just want a better position in their, in their own company. <laughs> um, but, it, but at least, you know, having that real conversation that educates them about us and lets them know what we're actually wanting and where we're going and, 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 and making them feel as important. Yeah. Um, and that's an important process for us because we want them to leave wanting to work for us. And I think the other thing I would say is um, don't make it too easy for people to join. Right. So we, we used to, you know, you'd have one interview, um, interview a couple of people, uh, right, I like you, um, got the job. Too easy. And there was a sense of uh, people yeah, not having earned the, the right to work in the company. And, and that's an important uh, perspective for the existing people in the company. Right. Which says, actually, if you're coming to work for us, you better be bloody good. Mm. And you'll have to jump through a number of hoops to work with us because we're good, actually. And, and therefore, we made it really quite difficult where, you know, we, we, we actually said, right, well, we're going to have minimum three interviews and we're not going to appoint anybody unless you've gone through a number of stages. We want you to do presentation research. Um, we, we want to really grill you. And so we would get people to absolutely you know, do a whole host of research about how they would do this job, which would be open to absolute criticism. And we'd give them, you know, they'd get a really hard time in an interview, as well as it being a positive experience. They'd still get a hard time, very direct questioning, um, in the same manner that it would be if they were actually in the company. So mm. why make it any different? Mm. Um, but tell them, tell them that's what you're doing. Yes. You know, that we are doing this because this is how it is and be under no illusion. Yeah, this is what I think that's the key key distinction there. It's just that authenticity up front. We're doing yeah. this because. Yeah. And then when they are offered the job, they think, well, that's great because actually I've been put through the mill and I got offered the job. And then when they come, they think, well, everybody else is equally been through the mill and they're all here and it creates <laughs> it's a bit like this really hell week isn't it yeah, we're all, we've all done the same thing we're all here so as soon as you join you're part of the brotherhood yeah, yeah. rather than this who are you <laughs> actually huh? come on mm. yeah and and everybody who joined was really pleasantly surprised because everybody was so open and so supportive and and, and encouraging there was no politics it was very much how can we help you because we all want to move on the journey together and you're going to help us get there and that created a really nice environment which is good fantastic so i should say now because we need to speed it up a little bit so we can edit that there. um while we were while we were on our journey of secured moment we made two other acquisitions which are quite important to the sale and happened from 2014 to 2018. Okay. So as part of the, we, we've done our uh, 5 million injection, we'd automated a whole host of processes. 
And there How was, long did it take for you to see the, the cost-saving realisation? Uh, realisation in reduced costs were um, within 12 months, and we cut operational costs by over 20%. Wow. So <coughs> big, big improvement. Mm. The, um, but it was clear that if we wanted to, to you know, continue to grow on profitability, we also had to look at the way cash was working within the company. Yeah. So in post, it's quite seasonal, and therefore the cash swings can be quite severe. And we wanted to find another company that was had good cash flow that would complement what we were trying to do. And we found a company called CMS, which is based in London, niche business, which is a very well run, um, owned in the States, but with a CEO in the UK and um, very capable individual. He uh, So we, we acquired that business and, and Steve, um, who was the CEO, joined the board, um, uh, had shares in the in the entity, and we we raised money. Our private equity partners went out into the market and raised money from the Qatari Investment Fund, and uh, we raised um, fifteen uh, fifteen million uh, with some um, follow-on accordion funding to be able to make the acquisition, yeah. and um, and that came in, and and it was a um, a really positive way that cash was was working we set up a group structure which was the delivery group where we had two entities sitting below it secured mail and, and cms and um, we had a treasury function that sat over the top okay which was nice and um, we thought okay we're, we're on a trajectory here where you know, we, we can we can probably you know with with a fair wind really get to good profitability um, and, and ipo and there was another business that came on the horizons 18 months later called um, P2P, uh, which was a, an e-commerce uh, distribution business, which is um, works with a whole host of very large UK retailers and retailers distributing via air and road all over Europe and the world, final mile delivery. Again, a great set of people have been running that company. And uh, we acquired it. We, we, we went into the market and we raised some money from uh, Apollo Midcap. I um, don't know if I'm allowed to say how much we raised, but it was several tens of millions of pounds to um, uh, refinance QI out and make the acquisition. And they then joined the company. Two guys joined the board. Um, and we had an entity that was on a pro forma basis. You know, I mean, it, it, that... That business grew phenomenally. I mean, it, it was an absolute sweet spot of an entity. But as a combined group with three businesses underneath, Treasury on the top, um, pro forma, £250 million in revenues, profits, £12 million, EBITDA, heading 13, 14. It's the idea with the IPO. Mm. And it's, it makes absolute sense. We've got the critical mass. Uh, to to do that, and during that time, um, FedEx had shown an interest in P2P, and actually came in and acquired it, right, and made a a great return for the company and for investors and everybody else. Fantastic. FedEx paid ninety two million pounds. Wow, that business in um, a short period of time of, of of it being within the group, and that sort of torpedoed the IPO. Opportunity. So the, the um, uh, investors said, "Well, why, why don't management do an MBO?" 
and there's a um, it was Steve and I, and we Steve made the decision that that he would take the MBO, and I would take the opportunity to actually go and de-risk my life because Steve was wealthy in his own right, and uh, I've been doing this for twelve years and not actually received any um, cash out because we just rolled all the yeah. time. And this gave me a great opportunity mm. to um, do the one the one thing that was was absolutely critical to do, and that was uh, ensure that you know my 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 family were, were financially protected, and I was able to achieve that. So so did it, and, and I'm still a non-exec director in the company. Um, they're, they're going great guns, doing a fantastic job. I'm still a shareholder in that company. Should have. Um, but it's enabled me to go and do other things that I want to do without having the risk or, or the stress yeah. of if it all fails, there's, there's a really big downside risk, which is you know your, your family. So two two questions then, um, and I'm conscious then we have to sort of wrap up soon. So I'm going to probably ask you for a round two at some stage. Um, but two questions: How did you cope with? leaving something I mean I know you said a non-exec there etc but from a day-to-day basis that you've spent effectively your last 12 years of your working life building and working very hard by the sounds of it and doing some complex things how did you deal with that psychologically what did you do to fill the void which I and I assume there was a void at some point but talk to me about that um and then the second question we'll come on to is what are you doing now yeah so um uh, this happened at the end of June this year very fresh. Yeah. And um, the, the, the one thing that, that happens instantly is the phone stops ringing. And, um, and this, this double-edged sword, that, because on the one hand, it's great, you know, that um, when you wake up in the morning, I, first thing I would ever do is look at my emails. Mm. You know, so six in the morning, write emails, okay, where are we? Um, then you get some phone calls. and then, But you're also dealing with, um, just general stress of okay, so you know, what's the company doing? What, what are the key challenges? Customers, you know, are we providing the right services and so on and so forth? All of that goes away because nobody's phoning you because actually everything just moves on. Not this is it's politics actually. Right. When you finish your general election, they're all moving on, and, and you're over here. The same in a you know in a company, the company, the entity moves on. You know, it's an entity. You know, going back to the whole custodian thing, you have an entity. And if you focus on that, you're, you're handing it on. Right? Everybody in that company is still with the entity. Yeah. You're out on the outside. And so because nobody's phoning you, because they don't need to anymore, you actually do have a sense of, well, okay, that's, I'm, I'm not lonely, but I have, I have time. Suddenly you have time. So I think the two things... One is, you know, I was, I was speaking to my wife about it. She was saying you have far more, you have far more uh, attention time. So that's saying more physical time, but it means the time that you're around, you're there mm. mentally. Mm. So you know, you can have a conversation. I can ask you a question, you'll get a response because actually your mind is on the here and now. It must be strange for your wife. It's no longer what did he say, dear? Sorry, yeah. I'm just doing. So, so yeah, and, I, and that was a real frustration. For, for her and, and the kids probably but um, 
Yeah, so so there is that sense that the time the time that you have, by all means, go and do other things. But then when you're home, you know you can be home. You don't have to open the computer and do lots of different things. You can spend your time actually communicating with the people who are the closest to you and the most important to you, and that's really nice. <laughs> um, and then in terms of what I've been doing since, I've um, joined with a, a couple of panels and um, we're, we're looking at uh, logistics. Uh, we all come from logistics backgrounds. We have complementary skill sets, which is nice, no egos. Uh, we've all worked in different facets of it, but when we come together, it really is works. And we're in the process of, um, of acquiring a number of um, companies. We have a plan, which is a, uh, a, a, a plan over the next few years where we've identified a number of different targets. So yes. we're, we're currently going through uh, a process where we're making our first acquisition. Fantastic. Many congratulations. Thank you. I could talk to you for hours, I think, but I am I'm going to let you go. Um, Thank you ever so much for your time. time. It's been a fantastic podcast. Uh, And I've been told to tell you that this has been one of the most wonderful experiences of of my entire career. (laughs) Who on earth would have told you to say (laughs) that? You genuinely mean it, Mark. I take it. It's been been very good. I've really enjoyed it. And I I can't believe that uh, I've been here for the last um, hour and a half. Right. It doesn't feel that long at all. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers, Mark. Thanks very much.